ATF agent Chris Bayless talks about the one time when it really got personal. Why was this one so different? I don't know. You know, probably because it was so personal, because I was probably an arm's length away from the guy. Um, I could see his eyes. I could see his emotion. I almost felt like I could see what he was thinking. I could smell him. Uh, It's just, you know, all those... You know, it was just so fucking personal, and I was, like, so pissed off. Like, the one, the shooting with Jay, I mean, we, we were getting shot at. You know, I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I don't, I guess it just didn't affect on the personal level. The times when I went to save, like, times we would save other agents, like, where we'd have to go in and get, like, uh, Jason in, in St. Louis or Bruce Stuckey in, in another one 14 days later in St. Louis on those incidents, you know, driving into an active gun battle. And so, you know, you just did it. You, you did how you were trained and, you know, unfortunately we got out of it good, but those didn't, I, for some reason, I think it was just, it was so fucking personal. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Did you get to do one of those things, show up in court and go, it was me? <laughs> yeah. Well, they actually, I thought it was interesting because even after they got in, they were indicted and they were all arrested and stuff. And they're looking at the indictment and um, they still were having a hard time putting two to like, who's this guy undercover one? Like, well, what's how, you know, and they're like, fuck. And then they, they kind of put it together. Like, oh shit. It's the dead guy. So then they realized um, this is going to be a problem. So they, they broke it down. So we had, I think, uh, probably 65 defendants total. We took 19 on the Rico and the, and the other 65 were just standalone drug buys, drug deals, you know, gun or stolen Harley deals. Um, so we took 19 for the Rico. Everybody pled. Um, we were getting ready to go to trial. You know, I spent, God, you know, five or six months transcribing tapes and, you know, making sure the attributes were correct and what was said was right, you know, and validating all the, the transcripts. And it, I mean, it's voluminous. It takes a long time to do that. Um, so once we got done with that, um, the last guy to go was the guy that was the president. He was the national president, Ed Days. Um, finally, I think his attorney talked to him and said, you could plead and get 20 or you could take a chance and do life. You know, what do you want to do? And he goes, all right, I'll take the 20. So he, he took 20. Hey, on the charges that didn't go federal, because stealing a motorcycle isn't federal unless it was it part of the RICO or did, how many of these charges were all federal versus how many did you run through state? Um, the, about six, I, I want to say actually only about 20 went to state. I think probably the other 45 were federal, um, either gun buys, dope buys, uh, but just didn't fit into the RICO scheme. Um, some of it were... Uh, you know, brothers that were, you know, within every group and organization, they, uh, they're all together for a lot of stuff and they're single actors for other things too. And so you don't want to take a chance on throwing something in the Rico that might've been a single act that some guy committed by himself or on his own that really didn't go to the furtherance of the club. So those incidences, those things were taken state or, or smaller crimes, smaller drug amounts that I might've bought. Um, those end up going state. Wow. So, and, and after, see, again, it goes back to people thinks it's sexy. You're working undercover. If they only knew how much paperwork is, was involved in uh, five to six months of transcribing uh, audio tapes. Right. What fun. You know, every, I mean, I'd go down to drive two hours to Peoria, Illinois, sit in the U S attorney in the basement of the courtroom, you know, and just listen to my drivel and drabbling on. And that's when you realize good undercovers at the end of their career say virtually nothing except for exactly what they need to say to get the evidence. <laughs> and the rest of it, 
They don't say a fucking thing. Good point. They know they're going to have to sit down and transcribe this shit. <laughs> you know, I would illuminate on some great fucking story of mine, and I'd be, fuck, why did I say that? Why did uh, Yeah. Well, until you get, if you've got multiple voices in the background, you're trying to delineate who said what, and it, it's confusing as it can be. Yeah, inaudible, inaudible, yeah. It's like when the guy's in the club saying, you're a man of few words, Chris. There's a fucking reason why, and you will find out later. Yeah, because later in court, I don't want to spend, you know, four years on the stand, you know, going over yeah. each syllable. Oh, man. So how long had – and you'd been on ATF about seven years by that point when it all came to a conclusion? That one, I would have been – it would have put me at about the 10, 10 12-year mark? mark. Yeah. So yeah. you're getting salty. You're a salty veteran. You've got a few. By that time, how many UC cases had you worked, uh, most likely? A couple hundred? Uh, yeah, I would say so easy. Yeah. Yeah, because every day – I'm sorry. I, like I said, I was in a group that uh, – Jay was in my group at first when he got taken hostage and shot in Arizona. He came up to Chicago. He was in my group. That's um, on his first fucking week of work. <laughs> yeah, first 14 days. Well, then he gets to Chicago. Did he tell you a story when he quit after the shooting we were in in Joliet? Or did he fail to mention that one? No, he didn't talk about quitting. Oh, yeah. So we're 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 doing a revert. We reverse these gangbangers, gangster disciples. They bring their own guns. Long story short, not to go into some big detail, but um, we end up in the stack that helps with the takedown. We never should have done it, but it just it got befucked at the end. Jay and I are in my undercover car, which we would actually had our vests in the back, uh, in the back seats. Um, we'd done the reverse. It got kind of convoluted. We end up in front of the bad guys. And so they're getting ready to do a traffic stop on these guys to get the guns. Well, as soon as they light them up there, this kid shows up on a bicycle. So I get on, I'm on the wire and I'm like, Hey, you guys abort. Don't do it. I go, there's a kid on a bicycle. That's going to be right where you guys are taking them down. So I speed my car up a little bit, let the bad guys catch up. And then I kind of block the road after the kid passes. Jay and I get out of the freaking car we got our guns out, announcing our office and everything, cops, cars behind him and stuff. Well, the driver gets out the front window and he starts firing at Jay and then fires over the car at me. They end up running Jay over with the car. His shoes get knocked off. Um, I end up jumping back in the car, chase him, kind of pit him into a field. They get out. They're hiding in this field. Now, I had left Jay there because he got hit by the car. So he's still back where the shooting started. So you got these two guys hiding out in this field, and it was where they were building new construction. So there's mounds of dirt. So I'm kind of at the top of a mound of dirt kind of peeping over, trying to see if I can see where these guys are, are at. And there's all kinds of brush and shit around there. So uh, about 15 minutes later, Jay shows up. He's got no shoes on. His kneecaps are, like, completely disjointed from his knees. He's climbing up this hill. He's got his badge and his gun in his hand. And he's like, motherfuckers, motherfuckers. And he goes, I quit. And he fucking hands me his shit. And I go, right now? I go, they're still out there. He goes, I don't give a fuck. He goes, this is two times. He goes, he goes, I'm fucking. He goes, I quit, man. And I'm like, no, not, not right now, bro. I go, let's, how about we do this? How about we get these guys? I get you over to the hospital. And you quit later. He's like, fine. So the cavalry comes. We get a perimeter set up. We have a catch of the guys. I end up back in the, uh, uh, I get Jay back and I drive him to the hospital. Well, Jay had actually shot one, the guy that was shooting at us. Jay actually shot him in the shoulder. And so um, this guy gets taken to the hospital. So I'm pushing Jay around in the, you know, in the wheelchair as he's getting x-rays and shit and talking to the surgeon and stuff. And so the bad guy's in laying on the fucking table. And he's got uh, 
you know, he's got the bullet wound in his shoulder. So the trauma surgeon comes out. He goes, hey, fellas, he goes, come here a minute. And uh, the guy, guy's gangster disciples laying out there. And he points to where the bullet hole is, his shoulder. He goes, you guys, because you guys get back to the range more, man. Bad fucking <laughs> shot place, man. He goes, you need to come down here a little bit closer. And so the bad guy's on the day. He goes, man, he goes, why the fuck do you want to do me like that? And so we're just like, hey, really? You know, it's not personal. He goes, oh, no, hey, not personal, fellas. Not personal. He goes, that's just the way it was. And we're like, okay, it's all good. So it was just like, so that was the day Jake quit. So. <laughs> We got sandbagged uh, on that we one, Murph. We're going to have to bring him. We're going to have to no. call him back. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. But that, that was, was just, you know what, though? It's when you work with people in that group, and, and that can be said for all those guys that I worked with, Jay, and all the other guys that are in the advanced undercover program and stuff, just such a good, just take care of each other. Good, just a good, good, good group of guys, man. You know, just one of the things that we tried death. to explain to our listeners, Chris, is, is the brotherhood in law enforcement. And and right. the sisterhood as well, because you know sure, females absolutely. are involved just as much as the guys are, and it's <clears throat> you're trying to explain it when Javier and I are doing our shows and when you're on stage, you're trying to explain where my partner in 1989 was shot. We've had him on the show several episodes ago. He survived, got hit with twice with 45 caliber slugs. Informant was killed, but Oof. it's hard to explain that that when you've been through multiple life or death situations with the same person and and or group of people. And you survive. It's it's closer than being a, a, a biological brother or sister, you know. And, it's, and the violence it's, associated with the act. Yeah. Yep. And and my wife, you know, when I first started dating her, I was already a cop. I was a city cop, and then she went through the railroad police, and then the the federal agent stuff. And it still amazes her to this day when you know I can go I can go years without seeing Kevin or some of the other people I've worked with throughout my career. And you sit down, it's just like you were having a beer together last night. You just continue the conversation. She's like, how do you guys do that? You know, it's just. Well, and that was interesting talking with Kevin is that was the first time you and Kevin had ever sat down and actually talked about it. It was, it was. Wow. And and, we, and you know what? We remember things differently, even though we're both right there in the same room getting shot yeah. at. Yeah. You know, people don't understand it either. Like when ATF used to, like their shooting review guys were internal affairs guys. You know, they had no experience with reviewing yeah. a shooting they don't know about audio exclusion they don't know about mm -hmm. tunnel vision they don't know about things slowing down so they like i think in jay's where he got taken hostage there was like well your supervisor says this and jay's like well i'm saying this he goes well yeah. he didn't see it that way it's like hey fucker you know yeah. nobody sees shit the exact same way when you get tunnel vision you get tunnel vision to exclude exactly everything right. fucking outside what you're focused on. And your time so, dimensions are time dimensions are completely skewed. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's all well, strange. and the other thing too is I as a detective taking a few statements on bank robberies or aggravated assaults or robberies, when you ask somebody to describe the weapon, you know how many times a twenty two was described as a six inch Colt forty five, you know, <laughs> like, a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a howitzer. It was a it was a howitzer on wheels, it was pointed at me. It doesn't right. take away from their action. That's what they perceive or that's that's what they've come away with, and that's why eyewitness descriptions are always but but when you're there when it's first person you know you, you i mean you, you know the other thing too it's it's as a side just a quick side story but it's you can go on to youtube and find a lot of these videos of dumbass robbers who walk into a convenience store they're so focused on robbing it they walk right past a cop in uniform and walk up to the counter and pull out the gun. And then he's then he's surprised when the cop screws a gun in his ear and goes, son, you're, you're going to jail. Where did you come from? You walked right, right. past me. Right, 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 right. Or, or when a robber walks into a cop bar. 
<laughs> yeah, right. It sticks that place up. Yeah, what an idiot. Yeah, that's, which is most, you know, any bar in Boston or Chicago, you walk in there and it's kind of like, ah, we're going to have a little problem here, lads. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, that's funny. Well, so, hey, Chris, let's, let's now take this to the next one you wanted to talk about too, which I thought is an interesting name too. So, um, Gideon, let's talk about this. When does, when does Operation Iron Horse finally wrap up when you are just done? There is no mas. It would have been about 97. I think it was, uh, 97 when the indictments came down. Um, and then, uh, I, I helped a little bit with, um, Sandy DeVolcanier was an ATF agent in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and she had, uh, done a RICO on the outlaws. Well, actually she did two RICOs on the outlaws and knocked those guys out. So I helped a little bit with that case. So probably 97 was the end of that. Uh, the biker stuff. And then no, no real, I did other, like we did the Hell's Angel Rico and that, that lasted till about 2004. And we, we took that one off. So when does Gideon start and tell us, tell us, you know, let's, let's start setting some context now for Gideon. Well, it's, it started out with um, Phoenix, Arizona. This is about 2009. Um, they were getting, it was murder cat or well, not murder capital, but it was um, kidnap capital of the world because cartel guys would bring dope over and then people would follow the load over, go to a stash house before they could break the load down and transfer it. Guys would go in and hit the stash house and steal, kill everybody and steal the cocaine. Um, but, you know, the bad guys aren't like law enforcement where they do a little more due diligence to make sure there's actually dope in the house before they do a warrant. These guys were just hitting stuff they even thought might be a stash house. Um, so they'd run in on families and they'd hold them at gunpoint and say, okay, you don't have any drugs, but order up a kilo or we know somebody or they'd kidnap them and demand money from the families. So we'd, um, we were running this, um, investigative technique in, uh, Miami, Florida, and it was uh, home invasion, uh, reverses. And so we act like drug couriers and we would take guys that were actively participating in drug robberies or any type of robbery, violent acts. Uh, and we'd provide them an opportunity to, you know, participate in our drug robbery, just basically provide an opportunity to commit a crime, which is not entrapment. See, I was about to ask that. Let's be very clear, because that is going to be key to one of the things we talk about later about, because one of the judges talked about, um, uh, you know, um, some of the operations you guys did. He said they, they called it like entrapment. Let's let's be clear about what entrapment is and what entrapment isn't, because you guys, you have to be very clear, especially when you're doing law enforcement operations, you can provide somebody an opportunity, but you, you know, but to avoid entrapment, how did you guys go about doing that? Well, we just provide the opportunity. We provide nothing more. And so basically what you have, you know, in criminal activity, you've got the criminal mind or the mens rea, uh, you've got the criminal mind and then you have an opportunity. All right. So when an opportunity to commit a crime is fucking met up with a criminal that has a predisposition to commit the crime, that's basically when you have crime. So we only provide one part of that that equation and that's the opportunity so we tell them there's you know i'm a drug courier um disgruntled there's you know 50 keys in a particular location it's uh, guarded by three or four stash house robber guards that are or stash house guards that are armed and that uh you know i, I want to rip them off but i don't have the people or the moxie myself to do it so i'm looking for killers and the only people that readily avail themselves of this are people that have the you know, the, the connections within the commun criminal community to get rid of cocaine because cocaine's illegal. So an unwary innocent that might be duped on this allegedly um, is not going to have the, the connection in the criminal community to turn that cocaine into cash. It's also, it's only appealing to people that are willing to be killed or kill for profit. So that, that you know, you're taking no John Q public is going to 
come anywhere close to this, you know. And then on top of that, um, you got to worry about the cartel coming back on you for stealing their dope. And t- cartels are notorious for their retaliatory acts against people that have crossed them. So you've got that in. So this opportunity again is only, you know, it. it People that avail themselves, again, are only people that are really in the criminal community that are willing to be kill or be killed for profit. And those are the guys that are the violent people in the community, the pariahs in the community that extort their community. Um, We've gotten like uh, after we've taken down a lot of these cases, we get letters from the community thanking us for removing this guy and asking for the maximum possible sentence for him because he's such a pariah in their community. So they go a long way to actually saving lives, you know, in in my opinion, but we get, we get a lot of, we got some pushback from the chief judge in Chicago on it. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about him in a second, but, but that's why I wanted to be clear about this to be, because this is not like you're driving down a street, you see Joe Bob walking there, say, Hey, Joe Bob, hop in a vehicle, hand him a gun, shove him into a bank, say, go rob this place. That's a little different. But when Joe Bob is a known bank robber and he hears you talking about robbing banks, he says, hey, I'd like to help you guys. And you go, "Okay." there's a huge difference there. And that's what a lot of ways we show the predisposition is by their criminal history. And then we have conversations with these guys that show their predisposition. I say, have you ever done this before? We do this all the time. We hit licks. You know, we just killed four people on the south side, you know, a week ago. That's what we do. We're killers. We're going to kill everybody. And generally, they're going to kill you. So it's that conversation. That not that doesn't come from some unwary innocent person that just got you know duped or we just ran up on. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Entrapment. It's not entrapment if they're already predisposed to commit the crime. They've got a pattern in history of doing it. And like you say, all you've given them is one half of the equation, which is just the opportunity. They already had the state of mind. So yeah, right. That kind of sets the curse or the precursor now for Gideon. So let's talk about Gideon. Where did this? Where was this idea born, or how did it come about? Um, my partner from, uh, he's part of the undercover program, Richie Zayas, probably just, he's a great friend and a great undercover agent, uh, probably one of the best in the country, no doubt. Um, when we were talking about the problems they were having in Phoenix, you know, we kind of came up with the idea, like, what if we just take a bunch of guys that are doing these home invasion, uh, scenarios, we'll take four or five UCs, we'll augment with maybe a couple agents from the groups and let's just hit it hard out there. We'll just keep doing it. So within like a, man, it, it didn't take us more than 60 days. We probably had 70 crews wrapped up uh, in that amount of time, like no shit for real bad guys. How did you identify them? How did, you know, where did you get the intel? How did you know that these were the right, how did you know that these were the right crews doing it? You know, so we went out to the local law enforcement and because they're investigating these crimes and we're like, look, when you talk to, and, and even law enforcement in general and, and even ATF agents, you know, we always talk, we interview a guy that we arrest, like, tell us about like guys, you know, that are dealing guns or dealing dope. We don't, we don't talk about, tell us about a guy that's doing an armed robbery. Tell us about a guy that's actually doing stickups. So that's what we started doing. We started talking to the informants and the defendants that we had arrested in other crimes said, who do you know is doing armed robberies? Like, oh, well, these guys are the stickup boys. All right, we'll introduce us. So we go to the stick-up boys, provide them that opportunity, and you know, probably six out of ten times they they uh, availed themselves of that opportunity and did the crime. This is a lot different than uh, penetrating, um, you know, the Grim Reaper Club because there is a by its very nature, this is already a violent activity that takes place on a regular basis, right? So. What, how do you go about now planning this too? Because you mentioned earlier, said there there were some shootouts, there were some things that happened. That it got pretty hairy. So sure, let's let's talk about that. So as you start working this, do you have uh, have you got a target list that says these are our prime targets, like these are the worst of the worst, and work your way down? 
We go, generally it's, um, a lot of these guys are self-identified through other cases. So agents that were working in Phoenix at another case ran into a guy that says, I do robberies or I do stickups. Or again, like you just said, there wasn't like a, a list of names per se, these guys. It's as we were able to, as we started getting into that criminal community that does licks, then it's the, the more names and people started to avail themselves uh, to us. And so we would step to those guys. And we used informants, you know, informants in Phoenix, and we also imported informants. Uh, we go to different areas where we knew like cartel guys were hanging out, whether it's strip club or particular bar that we knew a lot of, um, uh, you know, La Familia Michoacan or Sinaloa guys were hanging out. We'd send our guys there. Now, you had to be careful because you don't want to tell some Sinaloa guy you're going to be robbing his drug stash house or that you're a courier. So you had a, you know, it was a very delicate way that we had to actually sell ourselves to those guys. But there was that underlying element that was robbing the shit out of these guys. And the Sinaloa guys, I mean, you look to the narco wars in, in between the, the Cubans and the Colombians in Florida when you were start doing the job with DEA. Those guys are robbing each other and stealing each other. They got any, they were buying dope like we would, and then go hit the house, follow the guy back to where his stash was and then go rob him. So they did it the same way we did. And so our story of stash houses and how they operate are exactly how a stash house operates. So let's talk about the name Gideon, because that has a very biblical reference um, and there's actually something associated with that too. We'll talk about, but how, how did you, every operation has to have a name. I mean, you just got to have a name, right? It just can't be operation B. So how did you come up with Gideon? Um, it was Richie Zayas, who is a, uh, we call him the non-practicing Catholic, but, uh, his brother is a priest. And so, and, and Richie's very, you know, he went to Catholic school. He always reminds us that, you know, the reason he can spell and write good reports is that he didn't go to some flunky public school. He went to a, a Catholic, as good Catholic education he got. So, um, Richie, you know, he knows the Bible. So he said, you know what, this is a lot like Gideon was when God told Gideon to go get, I forget which, uh, which sect they were fighting against, but he said the Gideon army, God kept slashing it in half and making it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and said, now go get these hundred million guys and take them down. So he said, that's kind of what we're up against. We only got three or four undercover guys augmented with, you know, maybe three case agents. And you're doing Gideon's work, man. You're going after the worst of the worst and the worst neighborhoods and the worst parts of the country. And uh, and you're whipping a game on them. So he kind of, he modeled it after the Gideon part. Now, Richie also has, to, to his credit, doesn't go to church, but he does have the prayer of contrition, which I don't know if you guys are Catholic. Apparently, I'm not that familiar with it. So Richie said, if I ever get shot and I'm going to die, he goes, you got to get this fucking prayer out of my wallet because we got to say it because I got to get absolved of all my shit and sins before I freaking go to heaven. He goes, so fuck the ambulance. You should get this prayer card out. We got to fucking do that right away before I go. I'm like, okay. All right. So that was, that was Richie's master plan. Well, the, the reason I said that is there was a movie made about the 72 uh, Olympic massacre in Munich um, and the Israelis managed an operation. Now, a lot of people have confused that they said it was called the Sword of Gideon. That was actually the movie name. The real operational name was Wrath of God. That was the one, that was the real operation, but they turned it into a movie, Rod Steiger was in it, you know, the original one, but oh, that's, right, that's sure. where it was sort of getting Yeah, it was visiting vengeance, you know, small group of guys to go back after the ones that killed the Israeli athletes. And as a kid growing up, I remember watching that on TV, yeah. you know, watching the coverage. And I remember sure. who was the guy from ABC, Jim or something or other. He just comes on. He says, they're dead. They're all dead. I mean, it was just like one of the most poignant memories I ever had of watching TV back then. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that's and that's Richie's the same. 
Yeah, it's and so that was it. He felt like, you know what, we you know, we're in the righteous, you know, we're in the right. This is what we're doing. We're out, you know, fighting evil. And he goes, it said he thought it was very fitting. So how big was your so you said your team was small. How big was the 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 total team working uh, Gideon? Uh the Phoenix one starting out, I think there was uh probably seven to start with. And then uh, as it started gaining traction and we were making good arrests and knocking down good guys, they gave us uh, some more people. So it ended up being about nine or 10, I think, at the end. But every takedown was done with an SRT element. You know, all the arrests were done with SWAT guys. Um, we always had a couple of SWAT guys with us when we were doing deals. Uh, we always had like a SWAT medic, which was our medics are great. We have a great medic program in ATF. Uh, love those guys. They're very competent, capable fucking medics, man. They're, they're excellent. So we had all those guys working together uh, with us on these operations. And how, how long did Operation Gideon go? What was your time frame? The first one, usually we try to go three months because that's, you can't do it that hard. We were doing, like I said, you do up to 14 deals in one day, which if you can imagine a regular undercover deal to go buy something, you got the cover team in place, you got the undercover, you got the electronic surveillance, you got the buy money, you got the paperwork in advance. And so we would, we had our own separate standalone warehouse where we would just rotate the UCs through. We had a big ink board, we, or uh, not a race board, whatever it's called, or race board. And we would just put deals up. Hey, informant called, he's got this set up, we'll go do it. You know, these guys identified, we're going to go deal, deal with these guys. So we're running and gunning constantly. Uh, and even if we had a shooting, we were right back doing a deal the next day. You know, it, it never, never stopped. Well, let's talk about that too. Cause again, the, the, the non-sexy part of this work is, I mean, you're doing, there's a lot of operational planning going on, but there's also paperwork that has to be done, evidence that has to be logged. So, uh, for every one deal that you did, you know, kind of give us a breakdown. It would take you, you know, for example, like it would take us an hour to do the deal and three hours to do paperwork. What, what, what kind of, sure. what kind of trade-off did you have between the time it took to do the deal and the time it took to catalog, you know, and, uh, you know, record the deal? We had a, we set up a great system. So you would you would come in from your deal. You download the electronic surveillance. The undercover would sit down. He would write his report. He'd listen to the deal. He would write his report. Another agent would take the uh, the evidence that we purchased. If there was evidence purchased, he'd go ahead log it in. We had a temporary vault set up. Um, we'd immediately cut three copies of the uh, electronic surveillance, which is the audio video of the deal. Three copies went into a particular file. One copy was immediately sent to the United States Attorney's Office for them to review. So within 30, 40 minutes of us doing a deal, the U.S. attorney had an actual copy of that specific undercover deal. So they could say right away, hey, yes, on this guy, no on this guy, you know, a copy of his criminal history. It was really, really well done. And it was it was built for speed. So we maximized our, our time. So were your reports more like saw drunk, arrested, same? <laughs> no, no, actually, no, they're not. But they were, it's like we said, you know, as you Fewer became an words. undercover agent yeah. later, you said less. So it was basic the who, what, when, where, and why. And it was, it was the key phrases that were said. Uh, whatever evidence we got was discussed. Those things were put into play. And it, you got very, you got very astute at, at cranking your paper out. We were, our paper seriously was tight. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm jealous too, because you remember those days too, is you'd arrest somebody and you'd be down there doing your probable cause affidavit and stuff. They'd beat you out of jail. They bond out faster than you could get your oh, paperwork yeah. done. <laughs> Yeah. Well, most of our situation was buy walk. So we would buy it, let the bad guy go. So we weren't, we weren't, you know, we had speedy trial issues or we had to get him in front of the judge the next day. Right. Yeah. Right. There, but there is no buy walk on a murder, right? Somebody commits a murder. It's like, you kind of got to no. pick them up right then. So yep. yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's talk about some of these hairy situations. Cause you had the medics, you had your SRT teams, your special response teams, 
let's talk about a couple of the situations that that went south and why they went south and why uh, there was uh, lead flying through the air. Um, well, they went south because a lot of times the bad guys have a vote. You know, for all our planning and preparation and as slick as the undercovers are, guys, sometimes the guys are like, we just don't like you right now. and We're going to kill you. I mean, the guys we were doing were honestly, you know, it's a catchphrase, but they were the worst of the worst. So the chances of these guys jerking a pistol and deciding to go to work at some point was pretty much every deal that we were doing. So, um, you know, we eventually what we do and, and to kind of back up, but to talk a little bit about how we got to. It comes down to training again, too. It's what we talked about earlier. Like our undercover guys train with our SRT guys, and we could talk about that later now if you'd like to. But our SRT guys are on a set. They know what to expect from the undercover guys because we train together. We have multiple repetitions of agent rescue. Um, you know, so when our guys got robbed or they had the gun screwed in their head or they were actively engaged in a gun battle, they knew what to expect from their SRT guys, and they acted accordingly. And our SRT guys knew what to expect from undercovers as they rolled up on a set to try to affect the arrest or save these guys' lives. So all that worked, it, it goes back to that working together as a team and that training component is so fucking vitally important. You know, we, fortunately. Well, let's talk about that real quick because that didn't happen overnight. You were saying earlier too, in, in the old days, it used to be the SRT says, well, you got to stand here. You got to act this, stand on this X. And the UC guys are going, Hey man, we've got to be flexible. You know, as the air force says, flexibility is the key to air power, but to overuse a military term, you know, your battle plan never survives contact with the enemy. Enemy, right. So, uh, <laughs> so right. How did that come about? How did that come about changing the training? What did you start identifying that says, Hey, especially for stuff like Gideon, you've got to have a flexible fluid type of approach to this because a static one will get somebody hurt or killed. Right. It, it ended up being, there was such a buddy in the heads of the SRT mentality and the undercover. The undercover is like, you got to be flexible and the SRT guys, we can't effectively cover you with that type of flexibility. So we started working on scenarios. So we, we got together finally, we came up with some protocols and our first training was, I think in 2004 or five was in New York city, uh, where NYPD trains, they've got like a mock-up of city buildings and things like that. And we just started running through scenarios and we'd go, okay, you know, this was a rip or a robbery. Um, here's how you guys reacted. Here's what the undercover did. And we started chopping it up. We're like, how did the UC feel? What could the UC do better to facilitate the 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 uh, the entry of the coverage or the SRT guys element, you know, and the effective use of a sniper, RFOs, man, I've got uh, some um, personal friends at Macarecki. He's a great friend of mine. He was our our sniper on our team and uh, Ford Observer or snipers um, that are on our SRT team. Um, so in a lot of situations, we were able to incorporate those guys into a takedown or incorporate those guys into a meet location, where when you have the ability, when you know. Your sniper, like Macarecki and I always laugh together. He goes, I could see the fucking vein popping out of your neck as you were talking, or I could see your pulse in your forehead, shit like that. Um, but knowing that you have a guy that is going to dispatch this jag off with extreme prejudice if it goes to shit gives you that extra ability to maybe get that conversation more that you need and gives you that little extra comfort. You know, so we always work on, you know, in our scenarios, kind of moving the role player or the bad guy around. So, you know, that sniper's got the best shot if it goes to shit. Cause you know, if that guy decides to jerk his shit, and go to work, I can't get my shit reaction out fast enough to probably do it. But I know Macarecki on that fucking, 
on that 308 is going to pop that guy's head like a zit. Tenth of a second to pull that trigger that he's already got the scope zeroed in on that guy. Exactly. So it gives you that. So when we started working that, man, it just, uh, for me personally, and I was on our, our SWAT team, so I, I understood what those guys were talking about. But we really had to come together uh, for the Gideon operations because, you know, the bad guys vote a lot of times. They change it up. They might change the location. So, you know, the SRT guys, unless the bad guy can show up at this location, um, we're not doing it. You got to call the deal off. Well, that's just not realistic. So what we would do, we'd scope out 10 locations. Like when we were in St. Louis, we'd have 10 locations. So if the bad guy said here, uh, we'd say, or we'd say our location, the bad guy say, no, I want you to do it over here. We'd say, nah. And then we'd move it to another one of our 10 locations that we already got an op plan for. And so our guys immediately knew the long lats of that spot. And so for our team to pick up our cover team to pick up and roll out our SRT guys to then get busy at that second location, then it worked out great and we had no problem. So it was able, once we got that fluidness and they understood our point of view and what to expect from us and they trusted us um, and we trusted them, man, it, there's, they're just a great team, man. It, I really enjoyed it. Even when I did the undercover for the FBI and stuff, they were like, we like you use our SRT element. I said, Hey, no disrespect to your guys, but I work with my guys every day. And um, it's just, if it, it's all the same to you guys, would it be okay if those guys did it? And they're like, yeah, no problem. You know, they understood. So, so yeah, so that, that training, that component, you know, and every one of our guys that was in a bad situation to a man came out of it and said, man, you know what, that training saved my life. That training got me where I needed to be. Hey, well, let's talk about a piece of that training too, because firearms is a huge piece of this training. So, you know, ATF has their standard firearms, but when you were UC, what kind of firearms did you carry? Because if you're carrying a standard government issue firearm and somebody sees it and they go, hey, that's what ATF carries, or did it matter? I mean, if you had a SIG or if you had a Beretta, did it matter? You know what? The, in the wild, wild west, depending on where you're at, like I carried a five shot Smith and Wesson everywhere I went. I carried it in the front. I practiced all sitting down. I practiced drawing in the car, practiced drawing. So I had that muscle memory. So I carried a five shot and that was it. And I always worked with a group or a team. So I knew that within probably no more than a minute, these guys are going to be on the set taking care of what needs to be taken care of. So all I got to do is I just got to tie this guy up for that minute until the cavalry comes. Right. Exactly right. And so, you know, when you get used to that, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really need to carry. I felt like a SIG that had 16 rounds, you know, or anything like that. So I just, I just carried a five shot, you know, 38. And that was my, that was my piece. Did you have to deploy it ever? Um, the five shot during an undercover deal. Yes, I've had it out, um, but the SRT guys were Johnny on the spot, so and they kind of laughed at me. You're a little girl gun. You know, you and got you a got little fucking, tiny puny gun. I go, I'm sorry. You know, it's just memory. A guy's fucking jerking his shit. I'm going to, you know, they're like, you know, we're already here and you got two FOs. I'm like, I know. I know. It's just, you know, give me. Just Sounds let me like Hans it. and Franz. Here you are with your puny little gun, little girly yeah, man, yeah. you know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, they were laughing. That is old school, man. A five shot yeah, wheel it was. gun. Yeah, jerk my wheel gun out. You got a guy with an M4 and freaking 308 and a freaking helicopter. They're like, oh, okay, Chris. Funny. They're yeah. like, pat me on the back. Oh, it's okay, old man. You know, the okay. number of homicides I worked for somebody with attempted homicides where people would survive a shooting with the 45, but they would die on the spot from a 22. Yeah. Oh, sure. oh yeah. 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 There's no rhyme or reason for it, is there, man? <laughs> there is not. That's what we say. You, you can yeah. shoot a bad guy and they survive. If a cop gets a paper cut, he's going to die from the infection. I tell you, that's, that's, unfortunately, that's a fact. 
how do you go about making decisions then on where, when to, is it just the three month time period or because there's the, sometimes there's this kind of, it's this cognitive bias. It's like, I call it like being in Las Vegas. I, just let me play the slot one more time. Let me just, I'm close. Hey, we got, we got one more group. We got to go after these guys. You feel like I don't want to leave something on the table there. How do you make that decision to finally wrap this thing all up and bring it to a close? Because three months is about as much as anybody could take with all of us together working at that speed. <laughs> Otherwise, there might be um, some other homicides, right? Correct. You know, it's uh, I love Richie, but we I've never argued and loved somebody as much as I do with Richie, man. I mean, we're <laughs> constantly, you know, fuck you. That's a stupid idea. Fuck you, you Cuban motherfucker. I don't give a shit. You know, what does Miami know? He When he first started, he came up from Miami when we first started on the job. And he gave some talk about undercover in Chicago. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, he's like a little, like he's, his mannerisms were weird. I'm like, this guy, what does he know? He's in Miami. I'm in Chicago. Chicago's where it's at when it comes to violence. Fuck Miami. Well, of course, you know, Miami was off the hook violent. And and then, you know, it it was like through the nineties, everybody kind of was not at odds, but you know, they were kind of, you know, we were constantly trying to outdo the next undercover guy. And it wasn't until like the mid nineties, everybody realized, fuck man, we got such a collective group of guys that have got such a monumental amount of work behind them. Um, and that's when we started coming together and working in groups and working two or three UCs in one case, uh, stuff like that. It, it, it was so much better. It, it worked out so much better. It's, it's phenomenal. You know, and just a little quick side story here, Chris, um, go, before go. COVID Javier and I, got to speak at one of the uh, advanced ATF undercover schools down in Savannah. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And we were there just for entertainment. Had nothing to do with what you studs were doing. But, I mean, (laughs) you talk about meeting a room full of characters. Holy cow. And most of them, I would never in my my wildest dreams think that they were law enforcement. Uh, We've got... We've got some guys, like I said, we got like um, Mark Demas. He looks like Satan incarnate. You know, I mean, he's just sleeved out tattoos. He's a, you know, he's a power lifter. He's just this monstrous, you know, guy. And, and he's, but the nicest guy that ever walked to the face of the earth. But man, I go and do deals with Mark. You know, we actually, we call each other convict when we see each other because we've been locked up together in county jails to get next to somebody. And it never fails. We get locked up, we go to jail. Nobody wants to talk to him because they're afraid of him. You know, nobody's afraid of me. So I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm his, I'm his go-to guy, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, guys would stay away from us because they were like, that dude's fucking Satan. I go, he is Satan. Well, and, you know, and, and that brings up another story. When I was in Miami, I was working undercover and, and uh, we were trying to do some Coke deals there. And I teamed up with an ATF undercover agent named Jim. I won't say his last name here, but I know you're talking about fighters. And, yep. uh, and we both, I think, I don't know if he was from Tennessee or not, but he knew about Tennessee. And so our undercover story was that we were brothers and that he had escaped from prison in Tennessee. And nobody <laughs> would screw with me because they were afraid Jim would kill him. <laughs> they worked. They worked. Hey, you know, that's street theater and that stuff. And that's the reason undercover is so fun. You're only, I mean, we always say it's it's a bunch of frustrated actors. under ATF undercover guys are a bunch of frustrated actors, you know. <laughs> Prima donnas, you know, uh, but, but yeah, it's, you're only limited by your imagination on this shit. Here's an interesting factoid and you know how I am with the uh, useless trivia, but we are recording this on St. Patrick's day. By the way, I look like I'm the only motherfucker wearing green. You want to see my uh, it's underwear? the high holy days. I celebrated this weekend. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the interesting thing. Where is the second largest, uh, St. Patrick's day parade in the United States? Savannah, Chicago Georgia. Or Savannah, Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> Chicago, I mean, Chicago's I first. Lou, I called Lou this morning. I said, what are you doing? Because I could hear noise in the background. He said, I'm at the Savannah St. Patrick's Day Parade. 
<laughs> we were we were in Savannah for an undercover conference, and it was the usual suspects, all the guys you saw, right? Okay, at the, when you guys were in Savannah, it was the uh, parade in Savannah, which is a big layout. I mean, it's huge. So we're all those undercover idiots, like eight of us go there and we see this chef and there's all these food and like a buffet thing set out. And we're like, this is so cool. Like, you know, we're hungry and we're drunk. So we're like, we'll get something to eat. So we start getting in line and we're getting our food and everybody's like helping us spoon food on our plates. And they're looking at us and smiling and we get done. And I go, so who do we pay for this? They're like, what do you mean? I go, well, isn't this like, paid buffet or some shit they're like actually no it's a private party and we're like well, why didn't you guys tell us they're like yeah nobody's gonna fucking tell you guys you can't eat here we were just hoping you would take food and walk away and i was like oh so that was our st patty's day and that's where you brought that's mark and lewin that you know spawns right. of satan to say hey we're gonna get some food anybody got a problem <laughs> okay so um so yeah so we're bringing this to a close so let, let's talk about this so like again it's like you know how do you just it's three months you just got to call it right no matter what's going on you got to wrap things up right so um barring any other foreseen circumstances yeah we're uh unless you know all of a sudden you've got al capone on the hook you know it's like no we're so three months was about it we'd wind down we do a roundup if we didn't arrest along the way most of the time we would arrest people as we went along um so yeah so we would knock it down and uh and then of course you got court so we would be down for probably six months and then we would be planning the next gideon for the next location we'd be scouting that out going to do the advance work on it, getting to know who the layout is, who's who in the zoo, that kind of thing. And then we, same group of people, we'd be out that next summer to the next Gideon. So, yeah. How much, how much money was getting ripped on a lot of these, um, stash house robberies? I mean, what, what there was, was there just dope? Was there just money or was there dope and money? Ours for the ones in, uh, in Phoenix, the actual ones that were going on, it was both. It was uh, money and dope were getting stolen. The ones that we do, we just say it's, there's just dope in the house. Money's transferred a different way. So it's just straight up straight up drugs in the house when they go in. But there are three armed guards. Because you see these pictures, too, of where they find a stash house and that thing, there's rooms just stacked with cash. I mean, what was, what was one of the largest stash houses you heard of getting ripped? Um, God, you know— the drug dealers never really tell you when they get ripped. That was one of the things about these guys when they got ripped off, they handled their own. But we know that there's there's been ones where they've gotten we bad guys have told us before they've gotten two million dollars out of a rip uh, on a lick where it was a, a dope house where money's getting ready to go back over the border. We got one just on a fluke in Phoenix. We were doing the home invasions, um, and. Richie met a guy at a bar that said he wants some weed and Richie. So we were just standing there like, oh, let's just, let's just go see where he's at. We'll get a warrant. So Richie goes into his house and uh, kind of on the outskirts of Phoenix comes out and he goes, they got at least fucking 800 pounds of weed in there. And we're like, all right. So we got to Phoenix PD. We got a warrant. So we're outside cover and we Phoenix SWAT goes in and hits the house. Right. So the guy, the bad guy jumps out a window and jumps over the fence next door. And next door, the guy had chickens and horses and stuff. The guy jumps on a horse, no saddle, <laughs> grabs the mane of the horse and jumps back over the fence onto the street in front of where we're parked. Cause we're watching all this show and the SWAT guys are around and shit. And he just flips off everybody and rides away. And we were like, fuck, you know, should we chase that guy? And, and Richie's like, no, let's let that guy go. That goes fucking awesome. We end up getting them later, but we're like, how often do you see it? But he ended up with, there were 10,000 pounds of weed. And I think about, I think about. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. But it was, we didn't see all the rooms. We just saw the room in front, but every room, it was just stacked floor to ceiling. Can with, you imagine that yeah. radio call coming out? You know, 
car, you know, whatever unit, you know, Adam yeah. 12, you know, I'm in pursuit. Describe what, um, uh, a chestnut full. I don't know. He's, you know, he's on a Mustang. <laughs> what I, think Mustang? That, I think the yeah, Pelomino, I think the <laughs> fact that he, uh, flipped us off though, was so like fucking perfect. You know, you're on a horse, no saddle. Yeah. I don't think he had shoes on. He's just like, fuck you guys. And we're like, right on. The only thing right missing on. is yippee Kaye. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yippee motherfucker. motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Which by the way, was one of our greatest, uh, movies we ever reviewed. It's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. <laughs> yeah, Die hard. No doubt about it. But you know it. what? No you doubt. got to process 10,000 pounds of weed. That's a freaking nightmare. We did. And it was a state warrant, bro. So that was, uh, we went, we went back to the, <laughs> went back to the fucking bar. So that wasn't us. So it was oh, a state. Thank God. You know, we, we'll testify later, but Hey, you guys got to do, uh, you got to handle all the evidence. By the way, when you've had enough dope in a room like that, uh, you do get contact highs or non-contact highs. Cause that stuff in there just, Oh my God, you come that out and you crazy. go, you come out of there and you go, Hey, you got any Cheetos? <laughs> <We got Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry. Why are your eyes glazed? Yeah. <laughs> Why are your eyes glazed? <laughs> anyway. Hey, well, Dude, I don't know. Well, how long did you work uh, these Gideon operations? Uh, from probably 05 till I retired. I think uh, it was brought every, I went to, I think I participated in every other one. Richie did every one uh, that was on. It was kind of his baby. Uh, so he went to pretty much all of them. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's one of those things. I think after a while I had an incident in Cleveland on the Gideon in Cleveland. And it just, it just kind of brought it all. I was like, you know what? It's, it's time. You can't it's throw time. that out there without talking about it. So what was the incident? I think uh, it was just one where, and it wasn't even, um, it wasn't even a big deal. It was, I was buying about, I, a guy had eight guns, gangbanger, three or four time convicted felon. Uh, he was with four of his boys. I pulled my undercover truck back up to the backside of his house. He comes out and he's got the guns in a bag and he's just standing there. And I go, that's cool. So I turned to open up the truck and he pulled a 45 out and cocked it and he had it up at my face. And when I turned around, you know, it just, it's such a personal thing when someone's that close to you that does that, you know, and he just had those eyes, you know, that I thought, oh, fuck, you know, this is it. And, th and this is going, it's happening in about three seconds worth of fucking time. And I thought, oh, you know, this is it. Cleveland, Ohio. I'm fucking, I'm going to meet it in Cleveland, fucking Ohio, you know? And so that thought kind of went through my mind. And then he's like, uh, money. And I go, well, what are we going to do here? You know, we're going to fuck it. You know, you're going to jerk that, you know, what, what are we going to do? We're going to continue to do business or is this it? And so the guy kind of looks heavy and he lets the hammer go forward. He starts laughing. I caught the money out. I ended up buying that pistol off him. So I get on the truck and, um, it was a, but it, honestly, it was a, really, it's a nothing deal. I mean, it's just, it really was a nothing deal. And, um, for some reason, and I don't know why, you know, we got back to the offsite. I was like, even the informant goes, that's trippy. I thought he was going to fucking smoke you. I'm like, we're laughing and like, yeah, yeah, no big deal. Because we did, you know, we had been through that quite often throughout, you know, our careers. It's just because we're doing, dealing with guns. But for some reason, man, that was just kind of that death by a thousand paper cuts. So. Uh, it took, um, I got home and I, you know, nothing was really wrong and it didn't really, I don't think it started to catch up for about six or seven months after, or about five months after that. And then I just, man, I was shit at home. Fucking, I said, I'm, I'm retiring. I got out at 56 rather than waiting another year. And, uh, I just came to realize that it was because of that incident, all these other times of having to go in and save my friends. Um, you know, it just. No, it's, it's, it's the moment of reality. Yeah. It's just that cumulative effect. 
Yeah. So, um, and, and again, it was nothing. And I, I, it's that what got me, I was always in the peer support for ATF and I, I ended up talking to a friend of mine that from the Illinois state police. And he was like, man, you got to talk to somebody. So he got me, he put me in touch with this uh, Marla Friedman. She was the uh, international chief of police psychiatrist, PhD. I went to talk to her and man cleared that shit up in about six months, man. I went from having panic attacks, pacing in my basement, that heightened sense that something was fucking not right. Um, and she, there's technique out there and she worked, it's called prolonged exposure. It worked great for me. She gave me, she put me in touch with this book called touching the dragon. And she goes, um, he goes, you'll, you'll get to a part in this book. And the, the book is written by a guy named James Hatch. Um, he's a Navy SEAL and, uh, it's called touching the dragon. And she goes, you're going to get to a part in the book. She goes, call me when you get there. You know, she'll know it. So I get the book and I'm reading it and I'm going through it and it's a great book. And, you know, the guy, a Navy SEAL got shot in the leg during one of their operations. He was out, you know, he's no longer going to be a SEAL, um, was having all these issues and stuff. And I get to the part in the book, page 208, it talks about shame. And that was exactly what I was feeling at the time because Jay Dobbins, one of my best friends, man, he got shot 14 days on the job, you know. He's still out there fucking doing it. All my friends, my Bruce Stuckey, who I we went and rescued during one of the Gideon operations. He's in the middle of a gun battle and he's calm as fucking can be on the fucking tape. Hey, Chris, he's from Kansas City. Uh, hey, they're uh, they're jerking their shits, robbery. You guys come on in and get them. Uh, then they started shooting. Oh, they're shooting at me now. Listen, I'm going to pull up and go to the left. You guys come in on the right. You know, it's just everyday shit. And I was like, this jagoff that got me in the alley, he didn't even fucking shoot me. You know, I just pulled the fucking gun out. I go, why? And so it's that shame component. I had no idea what it was. And um, so since then, it's been um, just a total eye opener for all that stuff. Because you don't know after 30 years of shit, you don't know what incident. And it might be next to nothing that fucking ends up touching it off. So uh, I got with her and, and she's plugged me into we've done kind of a ad hoc crew support for people that she's run into that might need a peer or somebody to talk to from the law enforcement side that doesn't really want to talk to a phd so i've done that for her uh I've teamed up with another guy they do uh they run cornerstone retreat um which is like a 40 acres out in western uh western illinois that they're developing bringing families out of you know first responders that have gone through you know they're having problems and issues and a lot of it affects families um, so it's, uh, real happy to be in that right now. I really feel like that's, uh, it's been, it's been a good segue of getting out of it and now kind of doing, doing some of that. It, it really makes me feel good. Well, it's, it's, it's a form of therapy for you, but it's also, you're continuing to give back, you know, which is, that's what law enforcement does, you know, and that's the reason we bring people like you, Chris, on the, on game of crimes to start with is to educate the world of the commitment, the professionalism, the expertise the bravery, the sacrifices, the dedication to duty, all those, uh, you know, all those adjectives that describe what law enforcement does. And even in retirement, you're still giving back, man. So just God bless you. I'm so proud of you just for bringing well, that thanks, up. Man. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate that much. And you can tell it's, it, it, it touches an emotion with you. I mean, I'm getting oh, sure. goosebumps here just talking to you about it. It's, it's phenomenal. No, it's, it's, it's a hard thing, you know, and I don't want any, you know, there's, um, there's help out there 
and I've talked to military guys. I've talked to law enforcement guys and it's all the same, man, that, you know, and the, nobody should struggle like that by themselves, man. There's plenty of help, plenty of people to help their, their techniques. They come up with now with EMDR, they do a combination of EMDR and prolonged exposure. There's shit that can really help your mind sort through that shit in pretty short order and make it get you back to feeling good, you know, cause you don't want your family suffer. And we talk about that, you know, and, and everybody in law enforcement does, um, I, you know, you always wonder how much to tell your kids, how much to tell your family about what you do. Um, I, I had an interesting conversation with my daughter years later. I said, what, um, I go, how did, you know, what were your thoughts back in the day when things were really touching off and I was gone all that stuff? She goes, you know, I used to, cause I was divorced. I'd have them on every other weekend and Wednesdays. And so Wednesdays I'd get them early from school. and I would take them back to the ATF office. And so they would do their homework in the conference room and then I would do paperwork or we'd go out and do deals. So they got to know everybody that I worked with and they became like surrogate uncles to the, my kids. So uh, talking to my daughter later in life, I'm like, how did, like, what did you guys think? She goes, you know, after we started meeting like Joey, you know, uh, you know, and, and sweet Lou, they call him uncle Lou, you know, and, and we got to know these guys and we knew that if you needed anything, these guys would help you. Family. So like, gave me that like confidence of like, okay, you're not out there by yourself doing something. I, I don't have to worry about you. Cause you got Joey, you got Lou, you got, you know, bird, you got all these friends of yours that I know are so they love us. Like, like they love you, you know? So I think for her, I think that camaraderie, you know, that stuff that, that you weren't by yourself. I think that was a, you know, it gave her some solace. Hey, Chris, let's go back to Cleveland for just a sec. Is that the closest you've ever come? You think, or was there another situation or was this just like you say, the, the, the just the, the culmination of a death of a thousand cuts. Cause I mean, you've, you've been in situations right before too, where somebody's pointed something at you or done something. Why was this one so different? I don't know. You know, probably cause it was so personal. Cause I was probably an arm's length away from the guy. Um, I could see his eyes. I could see his emotion. I almost felt like I could see what he was thinking. I could smell him. Um, it just, you know, all those, you know, it was just so fucking personal. And I was like, so pissed off. Like the one, the shooting with Jay, I mean, we, we were getting shot at, you know, I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I don't, I guess it just didn't affect on the personal level. The times when I went to save, like times we would save other agents, like where we'd have to go in and get like, uh, Jason in, in St. Louis or Bruce Stuckey in, in another one, 14 days later in St. Louis on those incidents, you know, driving into an active gun battle. And so, you know, you just did it. You, you did how you were trained and, you know, unfortunately we got out of it good, but those didn't, I, for some reason, I think it was just, it was so fucking personal to see that guy's eyes and he had the ups, you know, and he had that fucking look on his face. Like I got the ups motherfucker, you know, I'm in charge of this thing. I'm going to dictate how it's going to go. And like, in my mind, I'm like, Hey, fuck you. You know, I'm screaming at the top of my head. Fuck you. I'm not going to fucking kneel. I'm not doing anything. You know, I'm going to give you the money. Fuck you. You do what you got to do. You know, I was not going to. I'm not going to get on the ground. I'm not going to fucking turn on this guy. You know, so it was just that shit. It was just so, I don't know, just personal. So I think that's the, that's what made it so much, I don't know, worse. And you, but you said that only that, how long did that go from the time you saw it in your face until he put the gun away? Four seconds. Four seconds. But, but you it know, seems how, like a I, lifetime, doesn't it? It does. The time slows down. You know, I had, I could tell you where the sun was in the sky. They had just cut the grass. That was what used to be one of my triggers was cut grass a little bit. I'd get like, you know, not just get a little more hypervigilant. And I learned out later, I go, you know, those are triggers, man, that, that 
you're going to get triggered by certain things. There might be agnoshuous, you know, strange things that don't make any sense, but you know, it kind of goes back to that. So that's why, you know, you guys have such a great platform, man. If that's any one thing anybody gets out of this, I really want them to get the help that they need. Well, that's the one thing we just want to say here, but, you know, normally we'd save this to the end, but if this is such an important topic to all our law enforcement brothers and sisters that are listening to this or family members or first responders. Or first responders, absolutely. Fire, EMS, nurses, you know, folks. Don't don't hesitate to get counseling. I never got counseling after Kevin was shot. I don't have dreams anymore, but they continued for years and years. I was I was shell shocked for about a week or so. You know, <laughs> my wife was busting my chops. She slammed doors just to watch me duck under the bed. You know, she's <laughs> kind of sick in the head too. But you know, it's it's not a macho thing, and this is something that can negatively affect you. You're the rest of your entire freaking life. So absolutely, if you don't if you don't get the counseling and you need it, you're a fool. Take exactly. advantage you're, of what's out there. And if your agency doesn't support that, get the hell away from that agency. Yeah. You, yeah. Should, become, you guys, should become first. Yeah. I've gotten guys that call up to me. I'm in a dark place and, you know, I don't, I'm thinking about, you know, doing it. I'm going, you know what, brother? I go, I'm going to see you right now. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, you and I are going to go see Marla. I call up Marla and I go, it's on my dime. First one's on my dime. I go, I'll take you by myself. I go, I know you don't want to talk to anybody, but I'll just, you just talk to me, but I want Marla to be there. You know, and so we'll just do it that way. She calls it now. She calls it bring a friend. Uh, but it's just, I, I go, I'll pay <laughs> hey, for another first one. Yeah. yeah well, I go, I'll do work. the first one on me. Let me go. I'll tell you what. And if folks haven't listened to our Joe Piersante episode with uh, Joe, I don't know if you know Joe, do you, Chris? So. Joe, Joe was a DEA agent. He was shot through the head in Afghanistan through an operations there. Everybody thought he was dead. He's he's blind now. But I just saw he posted to Murph. Um, he is going, I think in 19 weeks, he's going to another world championship bodybuilding competition. This guy is a beast. But God he went him. through the same thing. He went through he, learning, having. So here's a guy who was physically fit. He was a monster carrying the heavy machine guns. He came close. He had the gun in his mouth, you know, was very close to doing it. He had um, a blind. So he's having to accept the fact that he will no longer, at least for the foreseeable future, be able to see again. So he's having to learn to adapt to be blind. He said the same thing, man. It's just kind of like you cannot you, you cannot hide these things. I mean, we've all had friends uh, who have died in the line of duty. In fact, Chris, right. I think either you said it, I think you said it while we were recording. Um, you talked about when the Waco shoot happened with the David Koresh, you know, uh, and, um, the, those guys down in Waco, um, one of those guys was a friend of yours. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, it's again, you know, and I think the interesting thing is too, it's, and I want people to understand this too. It's, um, you don't have to be in a firefight, as a law enforcement officer to have PTSD, you don't have to be shot in the head or take a round. Um, and a lot of times, and for me, it was the fucking shame component. I was like, all my friends have been through so much shit. And I got a guy that didn't even fucking shoot me. And I'm spinning on that. I go, what? A, I was like, the self-loathing was palatable. I was like, you, what kind of pussy are you, man? You didn't get shot. These other guys got fucking shot. They're okay. You're, you didn't get shot, but it's that, it's that shame component that not a lot of guys, had, the, the one guy that I took that was thinking about killing himself, you know, he had never been in a shooting, never drew his pistol in anger as law enforcement, but he's also been to how many baby deaths, how many tragic car accidents, how many suicides where the kid, the 15 year old hung himself outside the kitchen window so his mom could see him out of some, you know, and consoling that, um, dealing with man's inhumanity to man every day and seeing how evil and evil's out there. 
you know, and it exists and it's there. So you deal with that every day after 30 years and you wonder, man, I wonder why I'm having some fucking issues. Hey man, you know, it's death by a thousand paper cuts, brother. You don't have to be in a shootout every other day to fucking have, have trauma. And the reason I was bringing that up is I said, we've all lost friends. Um, I was not counting, but I mean, you kind of sit back sometimes in, in anticipation of this episode. And I was thinking, you know, I've lost more friends to suicide than I have line of duty deaths. And one of them was a guy I used to work with um, uh, when I was a trooper, but he did the classical thing. He called, was saying his goodbyes, you know, bringing closure to everything. And then he goes out into a field, puts a gun underneath his chin, and that's it. And this guy was on the job. And it's like, so, I mean, but to your point, too, there's a very real cost. I talked with some guys who they work child pornography cases. And after a couple of years, they're like, man, I can't do this anymore. I cannot see this. Yeah, the PhD that I work with, she one of the things she does is all the task force guys that do the child exploitation. Yeah, she's on those guys all the time, and there is like there's a short period. It's like the Gideons, you know. And of course, it's not as intense, but um, it's only a short period of time you can function at that level, and then you got to step away from it because you, it just that that affects your mind. Your mind tries to solve problems. You know, that's what it's there for. It's solving problems for your life. And so when you get this trauma in your mind, your mind cannot find a place to file that or to make sense of it. Then it spins and you get on that hamster wheel and it doesn't quit. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing, man. It, it really is, but there is help. There is help out there. No, there and I'll tell you what, it, and Steve, to your point too, you got to find the right people that was receptive to it. I remember, uh, you get there's two kind of calls you never want to get when you're a cop. One is officer down, and the other one is baby not breathing. Those are usually the ones you don't want to get. And I got the baby not breathing, and I show up, and she happens to be the granddaughter of the secretary at our highway patrol. And you instantly you go in there, you realize, hey, you got to start doing. C-. I did CPR on an 18 month old for 45 minutes. Yeah, and, you know, at the hospital, bring her in there. You know, she she doesn't make it right. And so first of all, you feel guilt and shame, and then you realize my daughter is just about the same age. And then I had some people, basically, I won't, I don't want to mention names or ranks, uh, but uh, you had people say, well, if it was me, I'd go back to work, even if it was 50%. I'm going, I don't think you get it. I, I'm sitting here looking at going, as you're doing CPR, you're going, what if this was my daughter, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and right. so it's, it's to your point too, is that um, I, I took off work for three days. You know, I, I actually had the Lieutenant and the captain from the patrol office come out. I want to talk to, I was apologizing for the fact that I couldn't save the kid. Yeah, sure. you know, sure. and yeah. to your point, it's that shame thing. It's like, quite, you know, but she was dead by the time she hit the floor. She had pneumonia. She had basically drowned sitting up and then no, she I fell over, you, you know, and just uh, and the worst thing in the world, the worst part was um, they brought the mother in. And then I saw I could instantly hear when they gave the mother the news, because that is a cry only a mother makes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Oh, sure. That's heart wrenching. It's a heartbreak. It's an absolute heartbreak, man. Yeah, I wrote is. an entire paper on that for when I was working on a degree for human resource management. It was, they said, describe a concrete experience. And I said that it was called the death of a baby. And it's like, I, I still remember it to this day, writing that whole paper and everything. And t- I'm not, pardon me, it sounds like I'm trying to hijack what you're talking about. It's, it, but to your point, everybody has something they go through. It doesn't always have to be a gun pointed at you. You know, it could be something like that. Like you say, somebody, you, you, you we had neighbors lose their daughter to suicide. The father comes home and finds her hanging in the closet, you know? Yeah. And it's just the stuff that you have to go through, but let's, where does this lead to? We don't want to, you know, we don't want to stay dark here for too long because this leads to, but you know, for so long, and this gets into what, what are you doing now for so long talking about suicide was taboo in law enforcement. You didn't talk about it. 
you suck it up. Cupcake. That's right, man. You just, you know, real cops don't do stuff like that. And then what did we find out? Every year, and for a long time, almost three to four times more officers died from suicide, that's male and female, than line of duty deaths. So, Chris, I mean, where are we at with that now? I mean, how are we getting better with recognizing it, treating it? Are we still the same? Um, you know, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I would hope that we're making a difference on some level. I would hope that um, we see it for what it is on, on a management level, that this needs to be incorporated in all our training uh, from the academy forward. The minute you start day one, your mental preparation for uh, for not only dealing with armed confrontations, but your mental preparation for what it is you're going to see, you know, has to be installed. You know, people say, well, you guys are cops. Well, you're trained to deal with all that stuff. Actually, you know what? There's, there's no training when you come up on a child whose mom has decapitated her. You know, I, I'm not sure what the training is you get that makes you okay with watching and looking at that scene. Uh, there is no training for that. It's how you recover from it. And it's knowing where to put those feelings and thoughts and emotions and how to deal with that. And the only people that can help you do that are people that have been there, people that understand how the brain works. And that's why, like a lot of these, like this one guy was going to, uh, and I, I'm not down on social workers that are like, that help and do counseling and stuff like that. But man, you really do need, you need a PhD. You need a doctorate that understands the physiology that understands what the mental, how the components work. Uh, you need a greater understanding of how the mind works than you do just simply, you know, a warm fuzzy or have nice catchphrases. You really got to get to somebody that really knows how to deal with it. And um, yeah, a Twitter, a hashtag on Twitter doesn't solve problems. I mean, it's like, we've got to get, so how have you, so let's talk about what you've been doing since then. So you punched out a year early and I think a lot of people don't understand that distinction. 57 is usually mandatory retirement in federal service until you, unless you get extended. So how many years did you have on by that point? 30, 30 years. I was 56. I had 30 years in. Okay. What did you decide? What did you, when you made that decision, what did you decide to do afterwards? Um, I sat on the couch for, <laughs> I think I had two, I had three trials actually. After I retired, I still had three trials coming up, a uh, home invasion for the FBI, a murder for, or two home invasions for the FBI and a murder for hire that I'd done for the state police. Um, so I was still kind of in the mix. So I still had a pass to the office. So I kind of weaned off it over the next six months. Uh, but then after a while, I didn't have informants calling me. No attorneys were calling me anymore. Um, it's almost like I fell off the face of the earth. So it was kind of a stark realization of, wow, you know, it, it is over. It's all done. After you retire, it becomes Chris who, right? You feel like it's Chris yeah, who? Right. Yeah, nobody cares anymore. What'd you do? You're just an old man now at Starbucks getting your fucking Jamocha coffee. Uh, you're not that big a deal. So it was kind of, it was a little bit of a transitional period from it. But um, my son uh, bought a house that we needed to rehab and I pretty much dove into that uh, You got a little man. experience so doing it, construction, don't you? Correct. Correct. I did a lot of outlaw motorcycle gang clubhouses. So, um, so I did that with him. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, kind of a, a payback for all the years I was gone. I didn't teach him how to bend a nail. So now he knows how to bend a nail and do electric and stuff. So that was good, but it, it was good too, because, um, I, I got to talk to a lot of the guys he works with and, uh, you know, and getting his experiences every day, you know, and stuff and make sure he's sleeping right. And, um, you know, the stuff that he's experiencing, you know, what he's doing with it and where it's going. And, um, you know, and I think he kind of passes that on to his new guys. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, in some ways that just that peer support component, I've really enjoyed that. My wife too, she's part of the program. So, um, 
you know, we've been able to, to do together in some instances and it's, it's been nice. Well, let's, let's talk about too, you've got an interesting website, you know, what did you expect? And when you go on there and read the story, it goes back to, let's talk about Rico. Where did, where did the idea for this website come from and what's, what's its purpose? Well, you know, Back when they, they started with all the, the police shootings and uh, Donna Brazil, you know, the Democratic, uh, not being into politics, but I would see her on every station that would say the largest killer of African-Americans, black males, is the police across the country. And I was like, this freaking this isn't true. Yeah. It's, and there's a book out there called The War on Cops by I uh, just spaced out her name. Um, like McDonald, we McDonald. cite that in the paper. Yeah, yeah, and yep. and there's yep. some research too done by uh, a professor out of uh, historically black college at Western Kentucky University, and a Harvard professor, the youngest tenured Harvard professor, is African American, and they go through this and dispel these myths. But yet we get this, we get this perpetration in the media is that well, the biggest killer of black men is other black men. It's not cops. You know, it's funny when they first started coming out, my wife and I are like, okay, let's the Washington Post. They decided years ago, obviously that's true. So they started keeping track of all the uh, unarmed African-American males that were shot, just police shootings in general. So we went, we got all their information. So we actually did a deep dive, filed freedom of information on them. So in 2019, like I, I asked a friend of mine, how many um, unarmed African-Americans you think were killed by the police in 2019? He goes, oh, probably 1,500 to 2,000. I said, actually, um, it was 12 unarmed African-Americans were shot. And I go, and of those 12, um, the Justice Department found that three officers had overstepped their bounds and they were charged with murder accordingly because they didn't do it right. I said, but the other ones were all justified homicides. Just because these guys uh, weren't armed at the time, does it, they fight with the police, you try to get his gun, you try to run him over with a car, you do those other things, that resulted in your in your being shot and killed. Yeah, unarmed unarmed is a misnomer because it doesn't set the context for what goes on. And I know we're going to get some grief from folks saying, well, you, you know, you guys are being racist or what. No, we're not. No, it's this is factually based. And that's what it came up with because Mel Chancey, the president of the Hells Angels, when he got done on the RICO, we did him on the RICO, he looked at his mom in the kitchen and he looked at his mom and he says, Ma, they got me on a RICO. And she looked at him, she's like, what did you expect? You're the president of the fucking Hells Angels. You're at war with the outlaw motorcycle gangs. You're doing all these things. This is going to be the result of your actions. So that's what we came up with. So when we did the deep dive and I wrote the paper and we handed it out to our friends because I go, look, guys, I go, this is not true. I go in, you know, you got 55 million interactions between the police and law enforcement every year. Um, you know, and when we did the thing in 2019, we uh, we found out that there were you know, 12 unarmed African-Americans that were shot. Three were charged, you know, by the police because they had overstepped their bounds. I go, in fact, the Washington Post had gotten it wrong. When we did ours, we found one of them was actually white. A guy they said was an unarmed black man. And the other one was um, uh, he was actually armed and shooting at the police. So they knocked it down from 14 to 12. Um, so I started I looked at it the same time in 2000 and in. Um, in 2019, in one weekend in Chicago, we had 18 unarmed African-Americans were killed in one 24-hour period of time. 18. That's six more than were killed by law enforcement on 50 million counts for, for an entire year. At the sa that same 24-hour period, you had 85 others that were shot, not one of them by the police. So these are, the, these are in the city of Chicago, in these uber-violent neighborhoods that are predominantly African-American. That's where the focus was on uh, that's why the police are there but again it, it wasn't at the you know you're 
Donna Brazil talks about this genocide that's happening, and I, I agree with her. There is one, but it's not happening at the hands of the police. Well, it's interesting, too. Do, do you know who Ed Flynn is? Uh, I don't think so, no. Ed used to be actually the chief, I think, in Arlington County. He was Secretary of Public Safety in Massachusetts, but he ended up being the Milwaukee Chief of Police. And um, it, him and I didn't exactly agree on a lot of things, but one thing Ed was, he was very passionate. But he was at a city council meeting one night, and they said, oh, you're not paying attention. And there's well, some video of this, video. Too. yeah, where he says, hey, yeah, video. we yeah. just had another four-year-old shot with this. And then he talked about, he said, the only people dying to protect black lives are cops. You know, Correct. and, and, and I know, and I know folks are, some folks are going to, you said, you're being racist. Absolutely not. Cause I say that to say this, I go back to all of those motorcycle gangs you worked, Chris, how many of those, how many of the people that you arrested, what percentage of them were white? All of them. A hundred. If you were really looking to pick on people, you could have picked something else other than white supremacist, racist. And these guys were not the the salt of the earth right where they were probably some right. of the more no, most criminals. racist they're bad people absolutely they're they're bad people one percent crime yeah absolutely you know and the interesting thing too is like you know i've had to go rescue my friends in those communities i've almost killed shot and killed in that those communities at different times so if i was a racist i could stay home and not have that grief i wouldn't do the gideon operations if i was a racist i would let things happen the way they were going to happen you know it, it's interesting so now the the big thing is the largest threat to society today is white supremacist so in chicago last year we had 796 people shot and killed 851 total homicides we had 4542 people shot nine were shot by the police all of them were justified shootings none of them died they were just shot by the police not one of those 4,542 people or the 851 homicides was killed by a white supremacist. So if you really want to talk about where the violent crime is and what real crime is and the real violence, then we need to have a real honest conversation about who's doing it and why. I think everybody wants to go to the hashtags right away and do something pithy, you know, and stuff as opposed to doing the hard work, which is this is one of the things, right? Lisa McDonald, you know, you you got to read the book. You got to read the papers. You got to you got to dive into this. You, and that's why it's so important on these stories that we tell you, you got to get the context. You cannot just get right into the, if we just start talking about Gideon without understanding what was going on. And by the way, these Gideon operations um think about it. Who were these guys? Who were what what were the majority percentage race? What were they and what were they robbing that what majority race were they? It was the same. You had pariahs within those communities in the in the communities, you know, that are generally they're going to be poor. You're going to have, uh, you know, the constant their infrastructure. You know, there's no reinvestment in those communities. And so you have got a crime rate. But there are people in those communities, law abiding citizens that fucking need a respite from that constant violence day in and day out. In Oakland, when we did the first Gideon, the first month we started knocking down the home invasion guys, we they, we cut their shootings in half for the next month. They're like, what are we doing right? Because we weren't telling Oakland PD what we were doing, but they were getting their comp stats. They're like, whatever we're doing right, we must be doing it. And it was because we were knocking off the most violent guys in those communities. When you ferret those guys out, the community, you allow the community to breathe a little bit, you know? Well, take a look at the Asian home invasion gangs, the triads, the folks like that. They don't go out and they don't, they don't rob other races. They stay within usually their own race. They will, Asian gangs will rob other Asian gangs. We had uh, home invasion gangs traveling 200 miles to commit home invasions. And who were they doing it against? Another other Asians. Asian families. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. I think... I think what we're getting into is here is this is not about being racist. This is about being factual. It's about being realist and saying, you know, you've got people out there pouring their heart and soul into this job, trying to make community safe. 
look, if you wanted to be racist, you, you, like you said, you could just avoid the, uh, avoid working the, the Grim Reaper motorcycle gangs. Uh, we're not going to work any white motorcycle gangs. We're only, we're only going to go after this group or that group. And the point is you, you go where the, you go where the crime is. You, you follow, you right. just follow Absolutely. the stats, follow yeah. the data. Yeah. It's like losing your car keys in the kitchen, but you're looking for them in the garage. You know, I'm not going to find my car keys looking in the garage. I lost them in the kitchen. You got to go where your car keys are. You got to go where the violent crime is. And if I'm tasked with affecting violent crime, then I'm going to go to the areas that are the most violent. And unfortunately, they're predominantly in those in those communities. Well, let's talk about the, the issue of predominantly in a community, because I want to ask you real quick about Richard Posner. And because uh, he actually kind of said some really bad things about the work that you guys did in Chicago. And like, again, he talked about the stuff that you did was racist and that these sting operations, that's what they were. Um, just give us a quick piece of context on this. How did this all come about? Well, Posner is a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge. And unfortunately for us, he's probably one of the most cited jurists you know, in the country on the appellate level. Um, he wrote, or he read, it's like the ninth uh, circuit out in California. If you want to talk about the most overturned circuit and then they have the most right, overturned exactly. judges in areas. Yeah. Correct. Right. So Posner is probably one of the most cited guys. So anyway, he reads, there's, uh, the NY, uh, the school of, uh, oh, it's NYU. Uh, they did like a term paper. It was a Cordova law review. And they said that, you know, ATF, proactive law enforcement is racist by gender. And the stash house robbery cases are racist because, you know, we're only doing African-Americans. We're only doing Hispanics. Uh, there's no white people uh, that are involved in these cases. And it just wasn't true. So Posner, you know, sets forth this series of events. And, and the, the problem with it is, is, you know, when you're at the appellate level, you're supposed to review the case that's that's on appeal for whatever the reason is. You can only appeal. review the facts before you. You cannot go out and do Correct. anything extra. So what Poser decides to do is he takes this NYU study that misrepresents exactly how we do these cases, which puts the air of impropriety into it as if it is entrapment or that we're actually going out specifically to look for African-Americans and specifically to entrap them, which we're not. And that's not how these cases go. They made all these little remarks about, we provide them with guns. We provide them with a getaway car. We inflate the value of the cocaine. We inflate the dope amounts to get them to do it. Uh, we tell them how easy it's going to be to do the case, um, that the, the armed guards, there's only one of them, you know, blah, blah, blah. We minimize the risk involved. We don't do any of that shit. So now you got an appellate court judge that all the other judges around the country have decided, well, that must have been some evidence that was found in the case that he was supposed to be reviewing. And it wasn't. So that started this whole cavalcade of events that occurred out. The Ninth Circuit got a hold of it. They started having issues. Um, we end up with the Chief Judge Castile in Chicago. Um, you know, he's in the newspaper, you know, saying that yeah, I think he came out with well, I can read it to you. In fact, he came out, University of Chicago Law School kind of put all our home invasion cases together and filed a motion on outrageous government conduct, selective prosecution. And the Judge Casile was going along with it. And so he writes in his uh, memorandum of opinion and order, which at the end of the order, he finds it isn't racist and we're not selectively prosecuting anybody. But he can't help but get off the I think it's racist anyway component. Even though there's no evidence to show that, he decided it is anyway. So in his in his response, um, he puts down here, he goes, uh, it's undisputed in 2006 and 2013, the defendants charged in the district and the, the ATF fake stash house cases were 78% black, 9% Hispanic, and 11% white. During the same period of time, the district 
adult population was approximately 18% black, 11% Hispanic, and 63% white. He goes, these numbers generate great disrespect for law enforcement's efforts. So I had this sitting out on my kitchen table, and my daughter comes down. She's having her cereal. And she's at University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's an engineer now. So she reads the first paragraph and she goes, do you need to take a math class to be a federal judge? And I go, I don't know why. She goes, well, this judge would have flunked math. She goes, you can't use the general population as denominator in your statistical analysis. She goes, in fact, she goes up with her whole soliloquy. She goes, the premise of his statistical analysis is wrong. You can't use percentage of population as a demographic. Anyone who had elementary statistics could tell you that. She goes, obviously, you don't need math to be a judge. She goes, how many women? She goes, are in that judicial district. I go, well, 50%, you know, of the population is women. He goes, no women in stash house cases, huh? I go, no, not a one. He, she goes, well, then you guys are sexist. She goes, how many uh, Pacific Islanders you got? And I go, none. She goes, yeah, that's what I thought, racist. She goes, and uh, no Asian people? I said, no, not, not in Chicago. She goes, well, then you guys are sexist and actually more ageist because the general age of the home invasion robbers were probably between 25 and 36. She goes, this is nonsense. She goes, I would give that guy an F minus if he was in my math class. And I started laughing. But again, this is, this is the misinformation that's been put out by the chief judge. Now, at the end of it, he decides, you know what? All right, you guys are right. You're not entrapping anybody. It's not entrapment. There is no outrageous government conduct. There is no selective prosecution. But you know what? It just stinks like racism. Like, well, I don't really give a fuck, Judge. If it stinks, it's not. Well, the, the whole thing is, is that, you know, look, there is a Supreme Court ruling. And I, I used to remind our county attorneys of this and some other folks. The Supreme Court said you can use trickery and chicanery in an investigation. You can lie. To, believe it or not, the cops can legally lie to people. If you ask me if I'm a, if you're working undercover and somebody says, are you an undercover cop? You can lie and say no. <laughs> you know, why are they shocked? They may not like your methods, but as long as your methods are within the boundaries of the law, you don't have to like my, yeah, the, the boundaries of the law and the constitution. You don't have to like it. The point is, is it legal? It's not whether or not it's comfortable to you. It's whether or not it's legal. Well, Posner is a guy that thinks undercover is nefarious anyway, and he doesn't like it. Even when the FBI did the Greylord operation back in the 70s, where they used informants and undercover to root out the corruption in the Cook County State state judiciaries, the state of Illinois' judiciary was bad in Cook County. They had judges around the take. He found that to be appalling that they used undercover. So that's his mentality there. And I think an interesting thing, too, that the uh, Supreme Court told and reminded appellate court and district court judges is it's this thing called the chancellor's foot. And they say, well, where's the what's the measure of, of justice? Well, it's the chancellor's foot. Now, if we had a chancellor in charge, well, he'd say, I decide what the justice is, and this is what it is. And it's generally the measurement of how much of my foot's going up your ass. That's the chancellor's foot. And the Supreme Court said that's not how it works. Judge fucking Castile is not the chancellor in Illinois. Posner is not the chancellor in Illinois. We have a constitution. We've got a Supreme Court. And I will remind you guys of the chancellor's foot. You guys can't just judicial activism or you know judicial ad advocacy where you're going to ignore the law because you don't think something's morally right or wrong. You think undercover is not a very good investigative technique or tactic. That sorry man, that's not how it flies, bro. Right, and it's and so you you get back into the division of responsibilities here. Law enforcement is just that enforcing the laws. We don't enact the laws; that's the legislature's job. But then a judge's job 
The judicial branch, their job is to make sure that everything was done according to the Constitution and the parameters are set by the legislators. And their personal opinion that has no meaning or merit whatsoever in the decision. And in this case, it's a perfect example because he found you guys did not entrap anybody, but yet he feels compelled to put his own personal opinion on there because he wants to exploit the office that he's been granted as a public servant, which is wrong. Exactly. Exactly. It's like that's why we have a bicameral system. We have a system of checks and balances. We have a judiciary, legislator, executive branch. Everything everything works in concert because everybody stays in their lane. You know, if Judge Posner or freaking Judge Castile, they want to affect violent crime, well, then put a uniform on and go push a squad car around Inglewood or the west side of Chicago. Then go out there and, and do the fucking job. You well, know? all you got to do is look at the look at the stats that are coming in. Philadelphia has hit over 100 homicides. They are on a record pace already this year. I mean, it's like at some point people are going to say, hey, I'm tired. I want to be safe in my community. I want to live safely. You know, I want to be able to walk to the store, and not have to worry about my six year old being gunned down in a drive by that went bad or whatever it is. And so, hey, look, and, and I the, the thing is, I know. I know some folks are going to send some messages or say something. They're going to, we'll get some hate mail. You know, I don't, that's okay. But you know what? Name one racist thing we've done in this. We haven't. What we've done is simply say, guess, and the majority, guess what? The majority of cops of NYPD uh, or, you know, even Chicago, a lot of them in white. And they're, you got, they're out there defending all of the communities, not just one. They're out there defending all of the communities. NYPD out defending all of the communities, you know, and just like you guys did, you, you were defending all of the communities. And so, uh, it's okay. I think it's okay to have some controversial stuff like this because if you don't discuss it like adults, don't come to the table. Don't come here with your memes and your trolling and you know, um, uh, you know, uh, things that you know. Well, hey, what about this? Get the, show me some data. Show me the reports. Show me some research that you've done, and then let's have a good, honest discussion about it. That's why Murph and I like to say we stay out of the politics because we've seen idiots on both sides of the divide. Oh, absolutely, and, and we do. I'm, I'm not saying the that Republicans aren't like, but I, I think the and, and that was the reason I went to the newspaper and ended up in the Tribune and, and in the Sun Times with a uh, with an op-ed piece because I got tired of my friends. Like I've, I've buried my friends on these jobs. That, that have worked in these communities because they were out there doing their job to make that community safe, to, to, to uh, ferret out those uber violent people in the communities and arrest them. All right. They've lost their lives doing it, you know, and it does a disservice to those guys that are out there doing it every day to be called a racist or a jackbooted fascist and this other, you know, defund the police crap. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting. I saw another statistic or not a stat. I actually looked it up. Um, doctors kill 250,000 people a year um, by either negligence or, or malpractice. I go, we're not defunding doctors at this point. Um, and let's take a look at the demographics on the 250,000 that were killed. Well, the other thing though, too, Murph, and you mentioned this too, there were times when you worked operations in neighborhoods, people came out and thanked you. You go on, you make the roundup, you arrest people, people would come out and thank you. It, the, the ones who get impacted when anytime you remove policing services or you redirect services are the minorities. Those are the ones who least can afford the protection that live in an areas that traditionally have higher crime rates and need the police protection and these operations more than anybody else. Yeah. And you look at today's society, well, parts of society where they're in favor of defunding the police. What a ridiculous idea, because these people that are stuck in those neighborhoods who don't have the financial means to move to a safer neighborhood, that's who protects them. And can't the afford to hire private them. security and can't afford, you know, anything else. 
There's a reason why operations like this don't happen, and it doesn't matter. Forget the race. It doesn't matter in neighborhoods where the where you got high home values and stuff like that because the criminal elements don't operate there. They operate in areas to where they know they can take advantage of people and rule the streets and run them. And there's no better feeling when you, you know, Chris and I talked about this when we were doing a little pre-call the other day, and uh, he was talking about the Gideon operations, and it was somewhat patterned around what DEA used to have, the mobile enforcement teams. And I ran the one in Atlanta division for two and a half years. There's no better feeling in the world when you come out and you've done your takedown at the end of a six-month undercover operation, and citizens in that neighborhood come up and give you a hug. Thank you for what you you. did. And as you're driving down the street, they're applauding you. And you got the prisoners in the back street, you know, in the back seat, and they can see that what the neighbors really think of them. That's the best we had the same in the thing. In, same thing in Cleveland. Same thing in St. Louis. Same thing in Oakland. We got done um, when we were on the block taking some people down. It never failed. People would walk by very slowly, kind of look at us out of the corner of their eye, say thank you. you know, we've yep. been calling those guys for years. Thank you. Thank you. Got them, and they just keep walking by. I want to bring this to a close with a very kind of interesting, let's tie this back, because there's one guy we've been working to get on here, and it's been tough because he's maybe doing something with a movie and uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But you mentioned the name Mel Chansey, and Mel has come full circle. And I, for a while, I wasn't sure. I was like, nah, this can't be it. But I checked him out on Instagram. I've been following him for a while. So give us, let's, we want to get this guy on, but so you, you'd made Rico one Mel. I, I remember reading about some of his story about the bombs. They were blowing up shit. You know, Mel, yeah. Mel was a bad actor, right? He was a very bad man. He was a very bad man. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. Um, we took, he was, uh, that was the counter when I was doing the undercover with the hell's henchmen, they got in a war with the outlaws and Mel was the president of the hell's henchmen in Chicago and make like a very long story extremely short. Um, we grew up in a similar neighborhood. So we knew a lot of the same people, both good and bad. And so we decided to, I became a, a prospector, hang around with the uh, the Hells Angel or Hells Henchman chapter up in Rockford, which is a hundred miles away. The ultimate goal was to get Mel wrapped up. Um, but I, there was no way I could meet the guy. So long story short, we, I tried to stay away from him as much as possible. We didn't end up going out together. Um, you know, I met him a few times at parties or, but we never had a lot of interaction where he got to really talk to me at any great length. So, um, Mel actually got out of the club before we could Rico him. Uh, he was out of the club about four years. Uh, and he had called up on the, I would get all his jail calls and I could tell the guy was kind of making a change in his life and deciding to, to kind of turn it around. So, um, when it came time for the Rico, which Ricos aren't easy and they don't come about very quickly. So it took us a couple of years to finally put it together on him. And when we arrested him, he had already been out of the club for about four years. Um, and he just said, he, he saw me at the, uh, we were sitting down at the arraignment and he looks over at the Hells Angel guys from Rockford and he says, who's that biker looking guy with the ponytail? And they're like, oh, that's, that's Chris. And they're like, he's like, well, what's with Chris? He goes, uh, he's, he was our prospect. And he, they're like, he's like, and he's an ATF agent. And they're like, yeah, he's like F minus on that one guys. Cause that was fucking bad. So uh, he's kind of shaking his head. So uh, eventually he got through his lawyer. He called the U S attorney said, I'm going to come in on myself. I'll plead to, I'll take my leg and, and, and move on. So he came in, gave up what he had done. And, um, we were like, fine. Some of it, we had pretty much all of it. We had right. Mel, when Mel does his podcast, he says they had a bunch of it wrong, but now Mel, be honest, we had the majority of it. Right. But, um, he ended up pleading to, uh, to, I think he got 111 months to start. Um, 
And then um, after we allowed our main drug witness ended up getting murdered against the other guys. So those other guys got a, it's called a C agreement in the Rico. So they got to pick their predicate acts. And so uh, they ended up doing about five years and the judge felt compelled to give Mel the same amount of time. So Mel got a reduction uh, to five years also. So he did his time, but he, we actually go around the country and we talk to law enforcement. He talks about what he did back in the day to avoid getting caught. And I talk about how we caught him. So it's, it's, it's an interesting, but no, he's turned his life around. I had a lot of guys tell me, don't fucking vouch for that guy. You'll got egg on his face. And, and for years later, you know, he's going to start a chapter in Florida and he's joining the outlaws and he's going to go kill some judges and he's dealing, you know, a hundred keys of coke a week. And I'm like, well, if you got the evidence, go put it on him. But I, I, I don't think he is, but if you got the evidence, by all means do him. Cause I, I told him when he got out, I go, um, you know, if you go bad again, I'll put you back in jail. I, but we're, you know, we're, we're friends to this day. So, um, he, he really has turned his life around. I mean, he's, uh, he started the prison ministries, uh, in the joint. It was funny when he was locked up in custody, he would have a Bible study and he was in a County jail. The marshals in Peoria don't have their own, um, lockup. So they, they farm it out to the counties. So he's out in Henry County. And so there's all these inmates and he's like, the pastor would come in and they do Bible study. So Mel would make everybody turn the TV off and everybody had to either go back into their cell from the the day room and be quiet during part of a study, or he was going to beat their fucking ass. So that, that was their choice. And if you've seen pictures of Mel, <laughs> yeah. 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 He's Google massive. the guy. Mel yeah. He was at, when we arrested him, he was probably five, you know, he's about five eleven or so he weighed 300 pounds and he was jacked. I mean, he's just this huge guy. So he would tell his guys, he looked like a V yeah. on two legs and just his yeah, chest he, was probably 60 inches around if, if not yeah. more. Yeah, he's a large cat. So when I first met him in the clubhouse undercover, I was like, man, I am just going to have to shoot this guy right in the fucking head because there's there's no way. You see you see somebody like this and you realize why they give police officers guns because there's no way. You right. take this guy exactly. Down. Yeah, you're going to have to shoot this cat because he's, you know, and he was every bit of it, man. He was, uh, and back in the day, Mel ran with all the leaders of organized crime, the freaking street gangs. He knew everybody, he knew everybody that was anybody. And, um, you know, we just kind of became friends at, after he um, cooperated, came in on himself. And, um, you know, we, uh, the Rock does actually, I think um, they're starting something up, I think in the next couple of months, kind of tell his story. It's, it's an interesting story. Uh, it really is. Cause he was, you know, back in the day, he was it. He was everything there was about violence. That was Mel. And uh, to have somebody turn his life around the way he did, you know, it, it's a great, it's a testament to the Lord and a testament to people. Can but change. let me tell you the, the, the real test is people say, well, he's just doing that. Cause you know, you, you know what you find it, people usually get what I call the double J in, in when they're, when they get locked up, they find a job, they find Jesus, you know, and then it lasts just as long as it takes to get out. But I went back and like I said, I, I was a little suspect because we wanted to have him on. But I want to say, is this guy really legit? So go watch his Instagram. Go listen to what he says. He's <laughs> yeah. lived the life. It's hard to do it for a month. It's hard yeah. to do it for a year. It's much harder to do it. How long has he been out now? I mean, what, 10 years? 14 years. 14, 14 years. I think he's been out 14 now. Yeah. So he hasn't if gone he's, back on anything. If he's, if he's carrying on for 14 years, pretty much after 14 years, I think you can kind of believe the guy's living a righteous life now. I was just going to say, I've got him pulled up on Instagram right now because I follow him also. He's got over 78,000 followers, and he has a daily devotional. Yeah, and, every morning. He's got yeah. a devotional team called Devotional 316. I mean, this guy is, yep. I, I was very leery just like Morgan was, but I'm looking oh, sure forward to getting him are. on the show. I can't wait yeah, to get him on the show. I, I'm sure he would come. You know, he was, um, he, 
he helped me out. It was interesting, you know, I figured the places where people help you out. When I retired, you know, you get kind of that, did I really accomplish anything? Did I, did I, did I make any changes? Did I, yeah, did I make a difference and shit? So Mel had, uh, a guy had reached out to him on Instagram. This, the, his son had uh, terminal cancer and he was in Chicago and he said, Mel, you know, my son follows you and he likes your devotionals and your inspirational stuff. He goes, man, if you're ever in Chicago, can you meet him? He's like, absolutely. So by happenstance, we were going to do a presentation for the U S attorney's office. And, um, so I, Mel came up. So I went with Mel to meet this kid and his family and stuff. And, uh, Mel talked to this kid for God, it was only supposed to be like 45 minutes ends up being four or five hours. Um, by the end of it, the kid's crying, his dad's crying, his mom's crying, Mel's crying, I'm crying. Just was so, I don't know. It was just, it was, it just exactly what that kid, it was uh, his last chemo treatment. I mean, it's just, it kind of, everything kind of came together for this kid. He was excited to meet Melvin. Um, so I go to drop him off at the airport and he starts, he looks at me, he goes, he goes, if the only thing you did in your career was fucking arrest me. And it led me to be able to sit down with this guy and his family, this little kid, and his family for four hours today. And that was it. That was God's fucking plan right there. That's all he needed out of you. He goes, that was time well spent. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. So here it comes Mel Chancey, the former president of Hell's Angels, you know, giving me some fucking like, hey, dude, you know what? What's the measure? What's the actually, what's the true for real measure of what you've accomplished? I'm like, you know, dude, that's a good point. Well, I can't think of a better way to bring this to a close because that is, I mean, really, man, it's a life. Well, you had some challenges, like I said, with your kids and everything. But, hey, look, I just everybody out there better know if you're dating Chris Bayless's daughter, she's tactically sound. You know, (laughs) (laughs) there have been a few. She has a boyfriend now who's a very nice guy. I like him very much. He has to be a nice guy. (laughs) Very nice guy. And by the way, has your son figured out how to avoid the fatal funnel now? He does. He's a lot better. You know, it's funny when he went to the state police academy, he was like, dad, this is just like growing up. He goes, I do quick peeks and shit. They're like, where'd you learn that? He goes, I've been doing it since I was five. <laughs> so yeah, so it was, it was pretty funny. And your son's That's currently great. on the job, right? Yes, sir. He's a policeman. Uh, he's six years now, five or six years. Yeah. He's, you know, you can't talk to him now. He's a SWAT guy. So he's, oh, well, he's, oh, he's shit don't that. stink. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's tactical. Yeah, he is. But my daughter's she's way she's more tactically sound and smarter than both of us and always has been. So she's doing well too. Out in Cheyenne, Wyoming, building explosives. Sorry, or making manufacturing explosives in Wyoming. <laughs> Cheyenne, Wyoming, sorry. Legally, I assume. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Oh, not yeah. one of these remote control pipe bomb things you're gonna have to no, make a case no, on, she's right? Not one of those. No. <laughs> Dino Nobel, I think is the name of the company. Yeah. yeah. So she's oh. doing she's doing good, super good. I, I that's it, man. Been blessed by um I have two incredibly wonderful kids, man. Very proud of them. And a great wife. Um very should lucky. Be. You should be. And it's good too. I mean, it's we're glad to see. Look, man, I can't tell you how uh I mean this is this is a little bit different than what we did before. We told a couple of stories and you guys see we kind of diverged. But I think when we bring it all back together, ending up about the story with Mel and about, you know, your life's purpose and if that was just it. Um, but, you know, you did a lot of other good stuff, too. You know it. I know it. The American people know it. Uh, but it's just some it's hard sometimes to admit it to yourself that, yeah, I did good work. I did good things. But you did. Absolutely. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's like I'm from you guys. Appreciate it. I was texting Lou while we had been doing your interview a little bit, and uh, he refers to you as the real deal. You are his oh. BFF. I never thought I'd hear Lou <laughs> say that, but you're it. You're it. <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's you know what else is referred to as the BFF? It's called the buff. It's the B-52. You know what it stands yeah. for? 
Oh yeah. Big ugly fat fucker. Yeah. I would Chris Chris does not miss that image. No. I don't know. Talk to my wife. She pokes in my stomach a lot. <laughs> that All right, my, man. That's my lower chest. All right. Well, hey, look. Thank you so much. Hang tight. Don't go anywhere. But we want to tell everybody, you guys, this is an amazing episode again. If you send us hate mail, just put some stats behind it. We don't care. You know, we just want to have good, great discussions. Chris, one of the best discussions we've had, just authentic, raw, and just want to say thank you so much for for being on here. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, man. It's been an honor. A true honor to have you on here, brother. It's uh, you, you are a, an American hero, regardless of what you think or anybody else thinks. They truly are. So thank you, brother. Thank you, guys. Thanks for getting the message out. I love your platform and, and, and all this that you guys are doing for law enforcement, man. Thank you very much. All right. Well, you guys hang tight. Everybody else, you guys stay tuned for the debrief. I'll tell you the thing that most impressed me about Chris, like you said, and you said it early when we did the intro, he stuck to his standards. He stuck, he has facts to back up everything he did. But I'll tell you the most personal thing that Chris talked about was the thing that was most personal to him. He has been involved in so many stuff, mm-hmm. um, so many things, you know, been shot at, his partner's been shot at, he's lost friends at Waco, he's gone in to save agents, you know, from being shot at. But it was towards the end of his career when the guy pointed the gun less than an arm's length away and he's got the gun in his face. When you hear, when you just heard the emotion when he talked about how personal that got for him and why he made that decision he did, uh, I tell you, it, it just it doesn't get any more authentic than that. Uh, it was moving. I tell you what, and you just you mentioned it, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps now just sitting here thinking about, it just shows you that you know, these law enforcement professionals could be the toughest guys in the world. They're still human. They're still fallible. Not that Chris was or any of these guys, but they have the same human emotions as everybody else. And you can tell this is all about his heart. This was his life. And it still affects him to this day. You know, and the fact that it's, it's not an easy thing to step up and say, I suffer from PTSD. That's not something that most people want to talk about. But the fact is, if you're suffering that, especially for our law enforcement professionals and our military personnel out there, if you have PTSD, you've heard us say it before, we'll, we'll say it on every episode that we get the opportunity. Please, please go get some help, get some counseling. Chris is a perfect example of how he could overcome the demons that were inside him just simply through getting counseling. And many of the people we've talked to have fought those demons and and they've won so far, like it's a continuous fight. But um, we have all lost friends to suicide. We've all lost friends from folks who have suffered from PTSD. We don't want that to happen again. But anyway, so that was, I mean, like you, I get goosebumps just thinking about the awesome episode with Chris. And like we said, hopefully you kept your trigger fingers off your triggers because we weren't being racist, but we were being very serious. The comments I made uh, about the chief of Milwaukee, you know, uh, about who's dying to mm-hmm. protect black lives. He was serious about that. I mean, and, and these are people, if you knew him, if you knew the chief of Milwaukee, he's retired. He he is, he's pretty far left. You, people might think, oh, he's just a rip. No, that dude was Dude's pretty far left, yeah. and he, but he has an obligation and a belief that he's got to serve his community. So anyway, our hats off again, uh, and, and we salute Chris and all of the great work that he did. And again, and if you liked what you heard, just head on over again to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, let us know what you think. Again, 
your ratings are helping us get more exposure so that Steve can go down to uh, give a talk and have a bus driver come up and randomly say, you're, you're what keeps me awake at night. That's interesting because Steve, normally when you talk, you put people to sleep. You don't keep them awake. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you do all the talking. I'm just here. I'm here for, you got the voice for radio. I got the looks for TV. What can I say? Yeah. What can I say, man? Thank you very much. (laughs) 15 minutes past the hour. It is weather. Anyway. Hey, so follow us over there. Also, uh, on that social media, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, head on over to paypal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. But I'm telling you, get on patreon.com. When we get done, when this episode is out, we will have reviewed Patriot Games for the NARC O-meter because it's March. It's St. Patrick's Day, you know, so it's the narc, it's not the narcometer, it's the narc-o-meter, you know, in good Irish fashion there, (laughs) and we give our review of Patriot Games, you know, so uh, you guys voted, it beat out the Irishman by just one vote, so it was really close, so that's the kind of fun, yeah, it's really, really fun stuff we have over on Patreon, we have, as I was counting it up, Steve, we have over 80 pieces of content now on Patreon. Holy cow. (laughs) Wow, I mean, that's, I'm shocked, That's, that's fantastic. Well, and again, we have the, the people love, you know, you can't make this shit up. They like 911. What's your emergency? So I have a couple calls. In fact, I will tell you one of the calls we will do because everybody's heard it. It's the Jean Benet call, but we're going to look at it in a way that you haven't looked at it before. So I did a lot of deep dive on this stuff. So but anyway, but head on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes because that's where you got to be. So I'm telling you, Steve, I think this is I, I think this not only was it a great episode, I think we uh, just knocked it out of the park once again, exceeding expectations. <laughs> and from Steve O. Murphy, thank you very much to everybody out there. You guys, and I mean that seriously, sincerely from the from the bottom of our hearts, man. We love you guys. We appreciate your support. Tell your friends, bring more people in. We'll keep bringing you great content. Yep. And once again, to all you players and playerettes out there, and the Irish too, if you haven't stopped drinking, don't. Don't stop drinking. It's good for you. So thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, least racist, most dangerous Irish game of all, The Game of Crimes.